Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hi, I'm Madigan, and you're listening to Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist, a podcast that explores the world through a personal feminist perspective. Happy New Year, everybody! I hope you all had a very safe and happy New Year and have enjoyed bringing in the year 2023 with some loved ones or if you were by yourself. I hope you stayed cozy, watched some good movies, had a good glass of wine or whatever makes you happy, and you enjoyed bringing in the new year. I am frustrated because I spent like 40 minutes this morning making a reel on my favorite topics that I've covered this year, and I made one mistake in the reel, so I deleted it instead of saving it first, which either way, it would have been the wrong one saved. But I posted it to Instagram, and I noticed this mistake running through the entire reel, and I was like, well, I can't leave it like that, so I deleted it, and then there was no draft saved, there was no nothing, and I was like fuck this. I'll make this later. So I'll probably do that after I'm done here. Um, I had a really, really great New Year's. I hung out with the Somersault Queen guys minus Cody and their loved ones minus Katie, who is in Colorado. But it was so much fun. It was very relaxing, very chill. We actually watched the first Twilight movie, which I haven't seen since I was in high school. I think I've probably only seen the movie a couple of times, but it made me think of telling you all a story and a little bit about myself that I think will be a nice way to kind of start this episode. Um, So the Twilight movie came out when I was a sophomore in high school. So like half of my friends were driving, half of my friends weren't. And I had this like core five group of girls that I was with every single day, which I'm sure you've heard me talk about on the show before. But anyways, The five of us, or maybe four of us, because Caitlin wasn't really into Twilight, decided that we were going to go to the midnight premiere of the show. So it was like a group of four of us going to the midnight premiere of this movie, and we brought our homework. It had been a long day at school, and we ended up, you know, being there all night until the movie started, and oh my gosh, if I could only explain the excitement in people's voices when Edward appeared on the screen for the first time, everyone was like, oh my god, Edward, Team Edward, and I was totally Team Edward at the time, by the way. But anyways, the movie was over. It was probably about two-ish in the morning or so and we all got into my friend Emily's car and started driving back to my house first because I was furthest away when all the rest of my friends literally lived within like a mile of each other. So about a block away from getting to my house, I start feeling my friend Ashley like hitting the side of my arm and I'm like, bitch, what are you doing? This is really annoying. And I look over and she is completely convulsing, foaming at the mouth. And it was one of the most terrifying moments of my life we pull into my driveway I stay in the back seat with her and my friends run inside grab my mom bring her out and we bring her inside to my house once she starts once she stops convulsing and like she didn't remember who we were what she did that night like anything she was completely out of it and her mom wasn't answering the phone there was no way of getting a hold of anyone else it was just her and her mom And when the ambulance came, my mom decided that I would go with her by myself at 15 into the ambulance and go to the ER with her. 
And my mom and my friends would go to Ashley's apartment and try to wake up her mom. So they had to like break into the apartment building and then like pound on her door until they finally woke her up. So I was alone with my friend in the ambulance in the ER until about like 6, 630 in the morning. And that was a really big like growing up moment for me because I had to answer a lot of questions for doctors and be there for my friend when she really was completely incoherent of everything going on. And I was really terrified. But my mom and Ashley's mom showed up at the hospital at like 6, 6.30 a.m. I'm finally able to leave. My mom and I get in the car and I'm like, oh my God, I can't wait to go home and fall asleep. And she's like, what do you mean? You have school today. And I was like, what do you mean I have school today? I just spent the entire night with my friend being a good friend in the emergency room in the hospital, completely terrified, and I am exhausted. And my mom, like, if she's hearing the story now on this episode, she probably doesn't even remember this, but like, if I needed a mental health day or had a really bad headache, like, my mom would pretty much usually let me stay home from school unless she thought I was like faking it or thought I would be okay or whatever. But, um, yeah, she put her foot down and was like, no, you're definitely not staying home from school. And that was devastating. I remember showing up with all of my friends that morning being utterly exhausted. I don't know how I survived through that day. But um, anyways, that is my memory of the Twilight movie. Last night, we ended up turning it into a drinking game and it was really, really fun. Um, I'd highly recommend it if you're ever with your pals doing a Twilight drinking game. All right, that was super off topic, but I figured I would start the show off with uh, a little something different than just jumping right into the story. But I do have an amazing, amazing story to share with you today. And this is an episode that I've been working on for the last like three or four weeks or so off and on. I first thought of covering Nellie Bly when I was listening to one of my very, very favorite podcasts, Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan. And Daisy Egan is hilarious. And I actually feel very proud because my manager at my retail job also listens to Daisy's show. And she told me that I remind her of Daisy and Daisy reminds her of me. So I was like, oh, my God, thank you so much. She is a Tony winning actress. So I am going to take that and run with it. But on the show, Strange and Unexplained, they covered the history of Roosevelt Island, which was once known as Blackwell's Island. And that was where a lot of the prisons and insane asylums and things like that were held in New York City. And there, of course, is some terrible, terrible history of abuse and mistreatment of the people that were on Blackwell's Island and things like that. And she discussed Nellie Bly going into the quote-unquote lunatic asylum and how she was able to truly help a lot of the patients on that island. And as soon as I heard the story, I was like, I need to know more about this woman. I want to know how she got into investigative journalism back in like the Victorian era. Who is she and how soon can I share this story with my listeners? In the beginning of telling this story, I'm going to be referring to her by her birth name, which is Elizabeth, because she wouldn't go by Nellie until later on in life as that was her anonymous pen name. She was born Elizabeth Cochran on May 5th, 1864 in Armstrong County, Pennsylvania on Cochran Mills, which is now part of Burrell Township. Cochran Mills was founded by Elizabeth's father, Judge Michael Cochran. 
Her dad had been married once before, and Elizabeth had a total of 14 siblings. Michael had had 10 children from his first marriage and then five children from his second marriage to Elizabeth's mother, Mary Jane Kennedy. Her father seemed to work really hard to become as successful as he was as he started from a mill owner to a judge, and that meant that the Cochran kids grew up comfortably, and it seems like a tough thing to accomplish with 15 mouths to feed, because Elizabeth and her siblings, when they were young, had no cares in the world they were completely taken care of. As a kid, her family nicknamed her Pinky, as she loved to wear the color pink. But of course, as it goes in stories such as these, Michael Cochran unfortunately passed away when Elizabeth was only six years old. His fortune was divided among his 15 children, leaving their mother Mary Jane, who was still caring for much of the children with a small fraction of the wealth they once enjoyed. As was the only way to survive as a widower in the 1870s, Mary Jane quickly remarried, but the marriage was brief because her new husband was abusive. I can only be so thankful that the marriage was brief and she was able to get herself healthily out of that abusive relationship. I also can't imagine the confusion for a young girl like Elizabeth to go from absolute comfort to poverty and abuse and what that would do to her psyche. After leaving her abusive husband, Mary Jane and her children then relocated to Pittsburgh. To set herself up for a better future, Nellie then signed herself up for the normal school in Indiana, Pennsylvania. While in attendance in a very Audrey Lord fashion, she added an E to her last name, which to her made it look more distinguished. She dreamt of graduating and becoming a teacher, but however, only after a little over a year of schooling, Elizabeth ran out of money and had to drop out. She then moved back to Pittsburgh to help her mother run a boarding house, I would assume feeling very defeated. In the year 1885, when Elizabeth was 21 years old, she was reading the newspaper, The Pittsburgh Dispatch, when she came upon an article which caught her eye. It was titled, What Girls Are Good For? And the misogynistic article in the dispatch allegedly moaned about what to do with unmarried daughters. And the paper's response was, well, in China, they killed their baby girls, so... It was argued that a woman's place in the home was, quote, to be a helpmate to a man. Now, young Elizabeth Cochran strongly disagreed with the content of this article, so she wrote a smart and scathing response to the editor, George A. Madden, anonymously signed, Lonely Orphan Girl. Madden was so tickled and impressed with the Lonely Orphan Girl's response that he released an ad in the paper looking for this anonymous girl. When Elizabeth presented herself to Madden, he offered her a job to write a piece for the newspaper, again under the pseudonym Lonely Orphan Girl. This piece was called The Girl Puzzle, which argued that not all women have to marry, and what was really needed was for better jobs for women. Her second article, Mad Marriages, told how divorce affects women and argued for reform in, and argued for reform in divorce laws. This article, Mad Marriages, was the first piece published with her new pen name, Nellie Bly. Also, Mad Marriages was a very radical outlook for a Victorian woman at the time. Nellie was in line with feminists of the time such as Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Jane Swisshelm, and the Married Women's Property Act laws began being passed in 1839 state to state, which was spearheaded by the National Women's Suffrage Association. She chose the name Nellie, spelled with a Y, Bly, as it was the name of a popular song by Stephen Foster. 
Stephen Foster was known as the father of American music and was renowned for his parlor and minstrel songs, such as Camptown Races and Oh Susanna. He also wrote a lot of other popular songs of the time that would be resung by vaudeville performers and early Hollywood movie stars, such as Old Black Joe and Old Folks at Home, Swanee River, which Ray Charles transformed into his Swanee River Rock, Talking About That River, which became his first pop hit in 1957. So far away, so far oh, away. Yeah. you know that's where. Stephen Foster was a white man, as far as I can tell, and the song Nellie Bly's title character is a black woman, and many of Foster's songs have some racist undertones that were far too common and accepted for the time. <laughs> Unfortunately, when Mad Marriages was published, they misspelled Nellie by changing it to I-E, but she decided to keep it that way. I like that she spelled it with an I-E because my very first dog when I was born was Nellie with an I-E. And fun fact, Penny's name in her foster home was also Nellie, but she was named after the character from The Haunting of Hill House. I don't know if that should have been some sort of an omen for her behavior in the future. Now with her job at the Dispatch, they wanted her to cover domestic articles for women with topics such as gardening, housekeeping, etc. Instead of that, Nellie went to them and said that she wanted to do investigative stories, particularly stories involving other women. She first wrote a series of articles into an investigation she did on women's factory workers. She went undercover to expose the unsafe working conditions, poor wages, and long hours. This, of course, led to angry responses from factory workers, so to put her in her place, they punished her with the women's pages to cover fashion and society, a more typical role for a female journalist at the time. This work was incredibly unsatisfying for her, and at the age of 21, she said that she was determined to, quote, do something no girl has done before. She decided she would travel to Mexico to serve as a foreign correspondent, spending about six months in the country reporting on the lives and customs of the Mexican people. Nellie noted the use of gambling, Mexican weddings she observed, and the popularity of smoking tobacco. There was even mention of smoking weed, as well as the legend of the maguey plant from which alcohol like mezcal is made. You learn something new every day. She also wrote of the unfair imprisonment of a local journalist who is being punished for criticizing the Mexican government. She also made her feelings very known about the Mexican dictator Porfirio Diaz. These articles were later turned into a book titled Six Months in Mexico. When Mexican authorities saw who had written all of this negative press, they threatened to arrest her, so she fled the country and went back to the United States. Once she got home safely, she wrote that Diaz was a tyrannical czar, suppressing the Mexican people. She also accused him of controlling the press in Mexico. This is what she had to say about weed, though. The soldiers have an herb named marijuana, which they roll into small cigarros and smoke. It produces intoxication, which lasts for five days, and for that period, they are in paradise. It has no ill after effects, yet the use is forbidden by law. It is commonly used among prisoners. One cigar is made and the prisoners, all sitting in a ring, partake of it. 
The smoker takes a draw and blows the smoke into the mouth of the nearest man. He likewise gives it to another, and so on around the circle. One cigarro will intoxicate the whole lot for the length of five days. Five days? When she returned to Pittsburgh, the dispatch put her back into the society column. So she quit. Know your worth, girl. Then she moved to New York City, hoping that one of the major papers out there would be more willing and open-minded about hiring a female journalist. However, many of these papers in New York turned her down because she was a woman, until Joseph Pulitzer's The World hired her in 1887. For her first assignment with The World, she decided that she would go undercover to expose the horrid conditions suffered by mental patients in asylums. She decided she would get herself admitted to Blackwell Island. Blackwell's Island, now known as Roosevelt's Island, is about 1.5 miles long and was originally purchased by a man named Jacob Blackwell. Jacob Blackwell's home was the only structure on the entire island for a long time in the mid-19th century, until New York State bought the land from Jacob in 1828 to turn the land into a, quote, location for charitable and corrective institutions. Basically, somewhere far, far away to put all of the undesirables where we don't have to look at them and they won't bother us. And I bet you can already see where this is going. Being on such an isolated island made plenty of opportunities for poor and abusive treatment of wards and patients. The island would eventually receive the terrible nickname of Welfare Island. The first structure built on the island was a prison, because of course it was, in 1832. Then they built the New York Lunatic Asylum. Like I mentioned earlier, I first heard of this story from the podcast Strange and Unexplained, and Daisy made a great decision in pointing out that she was not labeling it a lunatic asylum, but calling it a mental health facility or anything of that sort makes it sound way more civilized than it is. And it was the people at the time referring to it as a lunatic asylum, and I think that the wording is important. New York State hired acclaimed architect Alexander Johnson to design the new asylum, Alex had a grand vision of a big U-shaped building with an octagon-shaped center, but this was going to cost the state way too much money, especially on mental patients, so Alex was scaled way back. What would remain was an octagon shape with two wings jutting from either side, one wing for women, one wing for men. Eventually, the entire hospital would be designated to women. The asylum opened its doors in 1839 with the intentions of trying a new psychiatric practice they called, quote, moral treatment, as opposed to how a typical Victorian mental asylum would practice. According to sciencemuseum.org.uk, the Victorian mental asylum has the, quote, reputation of misery where inmates were locked up and left to the mercy of their keepers. It was commonplace in these asylums for the use of physical restraints such as chains and straitjackets. The keepers would tie them down and leave them so they wouldn't have to deal with their ill patients. In the early 1800s, attitudes began to change toward mental health care, and local authorities now had legal responsibility for the care of mentally ill people, and mental illness was recognized as something that could be cured or alleviated. The, quote, moral treatment system was a new approach to mental health care which aimed to treat people with mental illness like rational human beings. Now, this all sounds great. They want to use this new moral treatment system on their mentally ill patients. However, the story you're about to hear is in no way rational. 
This new, much smaller than imagined building was open to hold 200 patients in 1839. On their very first day, they welcomed 197 patients. Most of them came from the nearby Bellevue Hospital, and I don't know if it was poor communication or no one bothered to ask how many patients they were to be expecting, but someone seriously dropped the ball here with the capacity. Like I mentioned with the construction of the building, the asylum was massively underfunded, and they had no way of properly housing and feeding 197 patients. The budget for food for each patient was 18 cents a day at the time, which is only $3 in today money. Can you imagine trying to feed yourself sufficiently each day on $3? It also wasn't easy to find doctors willing to work for such little money, so they ended up hiring med students and recent graduates as their medical staff, and the rest of the staff, who worked as attendants and nurses, were the convicted criminals from the prison. Before Nellie had even stepped foot in the joint, there was word about how bad it was. There was even a 900-page investigation written out by investigators, religious leaders, and doctors explaining the poor living conditions, but nothing ever came of it. It would be seven years until Nellie went undercover. In her book, Ten Days in a Madhouse, which should be the name of Max's memoir after living with me for so long, she wrote, On the 22nd of September, I was asked by the world if I could have myself committed to one of the asylums for the insane in New York with a view to writing a plain and unvarnished narrative of the treatment of the patients therein and the methods of management, etc. Did I think I had the courage to go through such an ordeal as the mission would demand? Could I assume the characteristics of insanity to such a degree that I could pass the doctors, live for a week among the insane without authorities there finding out I was only a shell among them taking notes? I said I believed I could. I had some faith in my own ability as an actress— and thought I could assume insanity long enough to accomplish any mission entrusted to me. Could I pass a week in the insane ward at Blackwell's Island? I said I could, and I would. And I did. First, Nellie decided to take a room at a boarding house and began to act out in strange ways. After receiving my instructions, I returned to my boarding house, and when evening came, I began to practice the role in which I was to make my debut on the morrow. What a difficult task, I thought, to appear before a crowd of people and convince them that I was insane. I had never been near insane persons before in my life and had not the faintest idea of what their actions were like. And then be examined by a number of physicians who make insanity a specialty and who daily come in contact with insane people? How could I hope to pass these doctors and convince them that I was crazy? I began to think of my task as a hopeless one, but it had to be done. So, I flew to the mirror and examined my face. I remembered all I had read of the doings of crazy people, how first of all they have staring eyes, and so I opened mine as wide as possible and stared unblinking at my own reflection. She then decided she would, confidentially, tell the landlady or lord, whichever it might chance be, that I was seeking work, and in a few days after, apparently, go insane." Eventually, the owners of the boarding house had sent her to Bellevue, where she was taken to Blackwell's Island. But first, she had to go through the courts to be charged as insane. What's really weird about this, when she was going through the court system, she was a really, really beautiful woman, and she claimed to not know who she was or what she was doing or anything about herself. And the press took interest in her, and they actually wrote papers and stories 
they actually wrote stories about her in the paper about this mysterious, pretty, insane woman. And I think that that's really hilarious. I don't know if it was a slow news day or what. Then she was taken to Bellevue where they pronounced her undoubtedly insane. When she got there, she noticed other women who were being sent to Blackwell's that seemed just as sane as she was. One woman named Miss Neville said that she had been sick from being overworked. She was unable to pay for her room at the sister's home to be treated, so she was transferred to Bellevue. Nellie asked her if there was something wrong with her mentally as well, and she said there wasn't. The doctors refused to listen to her when she told them that she doesn't belong in the asylum. There was another woman, Mrs. Fox, who also told Nellie of her case and told her it was, quote, hopeless. Nellie wrote, I began now to feel sure of my position, and I determined that no doctor should convince me that I was sane as long as I had hope of accomplishing my mission. Before we discuss Nellie's time at Blackwell's Island, let's take a short commercial break. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. Once Nellie got to Blackwell's, she dropped the crazy act. She says, I talked and acted just as I do in ordinary life. Yet, strange to say, the more sanely I talked and acted, the crazier I was thought to be by all but one physician whose kind and gentle ways I shall not soon forget. Here's an excerpt from the book explaining what it was like to enter the asylum. In trigger warning, this is pretty gruesome. We were taken into a cold, wet bathroom, and I was ordered to undress. Did I protest? Well, I never grew so earnest in my life as when I tried to beg off. They said if I did not, they would use force, and that it would not be very gentle. At this, I noticed one of the craziest women in the ward standing by the filled bathtub with a large discolored rag in her hands. She was chattering away to herself and chuckling in a manner which seemed to me fiendish. I knew now what was to be done with me. I shivered. They began to undress me, and one by one they pulled off my clothes. At last, everything was gone except one garment. I will not remove it, I said vehemently, but they took it off. I gave one glance at the group of patients gathered at the door watching the scene and I jumped into the bathroom with more energy than grace. The water was ice cold and I again began to protest. How useless it was. I begged at least let the patients be made to go away but was ordered to shut up. The crazy woman began to scrub me. I can find no other word that will express it but scrubbing. From a small tin pan she took some soft soap and rubbed it all over me, even all over my face and my pretty hair. I was at last past seeing or speaking. 
although I had begged that my hair be left untouched. Rub, 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 went the old woman, chattering to herself. My teeth chattered and my limbs were goose-fleshed and blue with cold. Suddenly, I got one after the other, three buckets of water over my head. Ice-cold water, too. Into my eyes, ears, my nose, my mouth. I think I experienced some of the sensations of a drowning person as they dragged me, gasping, shivering, and quaking from the tub. Then the patients are washed one after the other without a change of water. This is done until the water is really thick and the tub is refilled without being washed. The same towels are used on all of the women, those with eruptions as well as those without. About her first night in the asylum, she writes, I could not sleep, so I lay in bed picturing myself the horrors in case a fire should break out in the asylum. Every door is locked separately and the windows are heavily barred, so that escape is impossible. In the one building alone there are, I think Dr. Ingram told me, some 300 women. They are locked, one to ten in a room. It is impossible to get out unless the doors are unlocked. Should the building burn, the jailers or nurses would never think of releasing their crazy patients. This I can prove to you later when I come to tell of their cruel treatment of the poor things entrusted to their care. Even if the nurses were kind, which they are not, it would require more presence of mind than women of their class possessed to risk the flames and their own lives while they unlocked the hundred doors for the insane prisoners. Unless there is change, there will some day be a tale of horror never equailed. Nellie had eventually learned from one of the physicians that there was a total of 1,600 women in total on Blackwell's Island. There was also another building on the island called The Lodge, and The Lodge held all of the most, quote, violent on the island. When she saw the women in The Lodge, they were wearing straight jackets, and saw them tied all together on a long leash being brought from place to place. At dinner time, she spoke of the spoiled meat and meager portions they were given to eat, and they were also not given any utensils to eat it with. For the patients without teeth or bad teeth, they simply didn't eat, Others were so disgusted by the food that they refused. The patients were also punished for doing just about anything. She writes, If they talked, they were scolded and told to shut up. If they wanted to walk around in order to take the stiffness out of them, they were told to sit down and be still. What, accepting torture, would produce insanity quicker than this mistreatment? Here is a class of women sent to be cured. I would like the expert physicians who are condemning me for my action, which has proven their ability to take a perfectly sane and healthy woman, shut her up and make her sit from 6 a.m. to 8 p.m. on a straight back benches. Do not allow her to talk or move during these hours. Give her no reading and let her know nothing of the world and its doings. Give her bad food and harsh treatment and see how long it will take to make her insane. Two months would make her a mental and physical wreck. Nellie also told stories of nurses humiliating and beating their patients, which appeared to be fun for them. She says that when she was there, she never heard the nurses address the patients in any other way except scolding or yelling at them, unless to tease them. The patients were allowed to bathe once a week, and those who were unable to take care of themselves aren't looked after, and their condition worsens and worsens unless other patients step up. Nellie was eventually moved to another hall where she shared a locked room with six other women. One of them would get out of her bed at night and creep around the room, quote, searching for someone she wanted to kill. 
when it was time for Nellie to get out of there, she had some trouble. The more she protested being sane, the more insane they believed her to be. She said, quote, The insane asylum on Blackwell's Island is a human rat trap. It is easy to get in, but once there, it is impossible to get out. I had intended to have myself committed to the violent wards, the lodge and retreat, but when I got the testimony of two sane women and could give it, I decided not to risk my health and hair, so I did not get violent. Thankfully, a lawyer was eventually sent to her and told the asylum that friends of hers were willing to take charge of her. Quote, I had looked forward so eagerly to leaving the horrible place, yet when my release came and I knew that God's sunlight was to be free for me once again, there was a certain pain in leaving. For ten days I had been one of them. Foolishly enough, it seemed intensely selfish to leave them to their sufferings. I felt a quixotic desire to help them by sympathy and presence. But only for a moment, the bars were down, and freedom was sweeter to me than ever. Soon after Nellie was released, she was summoned to appear before a grand jury where she told her story. The jurors visited the asylum and got to look for themselves at what Nellie and the other women had been living in. Unfortunately, they had been warned of the grand jury's arrival and spruced the place up a little bit. Nellie was worried that this would make the jurors disbelieve her story. Luckily, they sided with Nellie, and their report to the court advised all the changes made that she had proposed. In the introduction to the book, Ten Days in a Madhouse, she writes, I am happy to be able to state, as a result of my visit to the asylum and the exposures consequent thereon, that the city of New York has appropriated $1 million more per annum than ever before for the care of the insane. So I have at least the satisfaction of knowing that the poor unfortunate souls will be better cared for because of my work. According to her Wikipedia page, Nellie had a significant impact on American culture, and she ushered in the era of, quote, stunt girl journalism. Now, stunt girl was often used in a derogatory way. Male reporters were called investigative journalists, while women doing the same work were labeled as stunt girls. And even using girl instead of woman in such a way is to belittle the woman doing the work. The work of the, quote, stunt girl by the 19th century would become, quote, disdained as a particularly female variety of trash. Well, I think you're a variety of trash. Using her newfound fame, Nellie took the opportunity to interview the alleged insane serial killer, Lizzie Halliday, which launched her out of the realm of the stunt girl reporter that she had originated and made her into a serious investigative journalist. Now, the Wikipedia image of Lizzie Halliday is truly one of nightmares. It looks like it was done by a police sketch artist, and she's depicted with wild dark hair, a large forehead, and an uneasy look in her eyes that looks off to the right of the frame. She was an Irish-American serial killer responsible for the deaths of four people in upstate New York in the 1890s, and she became the first woman to be sentenced to death in 1894, but her sentence was commuted to life in a mental institution. While institutionalized, she then killed one of her nurses. Of course, this story was right up Nellie's alley. And in Nellie's interview, Lizzie divulged that she had killed more than the courts even knew about and discussed having been married five times before she wed her latest husband, Paul Halliday, and that two of her husbands had died less than a year after their weddings. Lizzie told Nellie, quote, it is a long story, and it is over many murders besides those already known. Creepy. 
This interview brought Lizzie's story even more attention, and true crime stories became about as popular then as they are now. In 1888, when Nellie was 24 years old, she suggested to her editor at The World that she would like to take a trip around the world, attempting to turn the fictional Around the World in 80 Days from 1837 into a reality for the first time. On November 14, 1889, at 9.40 a.m. and two days' notice, she boarded the Augusta Victoria steamer and began her roughly 24,899-mile journey. To get people interested in the story, the world organized the, quote, Nellie Bly guessing match, where readers would estimate Nellie's arrival time home to the second, with the grand prize being a trip to Europe for themselves. On her travels, she went through England, France, Brandisi in southern Italy, the Suez Canal, Colombo in Sri Lanka, the Strait Settlement of Penyang in Singapore, Hong Kong, and Japan. 72 days after departing from Hoboken, New Jersey, Nellie was back in New York, having circumnavigated the globe, mostly alone. Her journey broke a world record, but only for a few months, since George Francis Train completed the journey in 67 days the next year in 1890. After traveling around the world, Nellie took a job as a novelist for the publisher Norman Monroe's weekly New York Family Story paper. She began working on this while she was traveling around the world, and the first chapters of her book, Eva the Adventuress, appeared in print before she even got back to New York. The book was based off the real-life trials of Eva Hamilton. In real life, apparently Eva had been seeing Robert Ray Hamilton, the great-grandson of founding father Alexander Hamilton. They had been seeing each other for a few years when she told him that she was pregnant. She then went away, and after months of seclusion, she introduced Hamilton to his daughter, and he decided that he would marry Eva, being the good person, and that's just what you did during that time. Love or no love. And everything seemed to be going pretty great for the couple, until eight months later, when Eva was charged with attempting to murder the baby's nurse. And get this, apparently Eva had never been pregnant and purchased a child who had died. She then bought another who also died, then she bought a third, but the baby didn't look enough like the first one, so she sent it back, then purchased a fourth child and passed this one off as Hamilton's. Nellie was completely enthralled by this case and wrote three stories about it. The first was called Nellie Bly Buys a Baby, where she played a prospective buyer and tracks down a woman who claims to have sold one of the babies to Eva. The second article was the interview with Eva herself, which was huge, as up to this point no one had gotten as much of a statement out of Eva, let alone a whole interview. The third was a follow-up interview with added details of Eva's life in prison. This writing would become one of her longest novels. Apparently, she was so into the reporting and telling of this story that she began to complain of crippling headaches during the time that she worked on it. Between 1889 and 1895, Nellie wrote 11 novels. Few copies of the paper have survived, and the novels were thought to have been lost until last year, in 2021, when author David Blixt announced their discovery. Though continuing to write novels, she had also returned to the world in 1893. In 1897, she married a millionaire manufacturer named Robert Seaman. Nellie was 31 years old, and Robert was 42 years her senior at 73. That's like me marrying one of my mom's friends. Robert's health began quickly failing after their marriage, which happens when you marry a 73-year-old man in the late 18th century. 
Nellie then left journalism and succeeded her husband as head of the Ironclad Manufacturing Company, which made steel containers such as milk cans and boilers. I wonder how that went over with Nellie taking over this million-dollar company. The same year that Nellie took over, Ironclad began manufacturing the steel barrel that was the model for the 55-gallon oil drum, which is still in widespread use in the United States. And there have been claims that Nellie was the one that invented the barrel, but she isn't registered to the patent. She was, however, an inventor in her own right, receiving U.S. patent number 6,097,553 for a novel milk can and U.S. patent 703,711 for a stacking garbage can, both under her married name of Elizabeth Cochran Seaman. At one point, she was one of the leading women industrialists in the States, but due to her negligence and embezzlement by factory manager, the ironclad manufacturing company went bankrupt. According to her biographer, Brooke Kroger, she ran her company as a model of social welfare, replete with health benefits and recreational facilities. But Bly was hopeless at understanding the financial aspects of her business and ultimately lost everything. She went back to reporting and in 1913 covered the women's suffrage procession for the New York Evening Journal. Her article's headline was, Suffragists are Men's Superiors. In it, she correctly predicted that 1920 would be the year that women in the United States would be given the right to vote. She also wrote stories on Europe's Eastern Front during World War I and was the first woman and one of the first foreigners to visit the war zone between Serbia and Austria. These reports gave Americans firsthand knowledge of what was going on in the war three years before they would join into the conflict. During this time there, she was even arrested and was suspected for being a British spy. I wasn't able to find much about her life once she stopped reporting, but she eventually passed away of pneumonia at St. Mark's Hospital in New York City on January 27, 1922, at the age of 57. One newspaper official wrote this about her after her death. Nellie Bly was the best reporter in America. More important is the work of which the world knew nothing. She died leaving little money. What she had was promised to take care of children without homes for whom she wished to provide. Her life was useful. She takes with her from this earth all that she cared about, an honorable name, the respect and affection of her fellow workers, the memory of good fights well fought, and many good deeds never to be forgotten. Happy the man or woman that can leave as good a record. The website prisonpolicy.org wrote that Nellie's legacy encouraged other investigative journalists to go deeper into their story. They say that they believe that investigative journalism is, quote, a key part of a functioning democracy and is key to criminal justice reform. What's interesting about Bly's book, Ten Days in a Madhouse, is not just the subject matter. It is also the foundation for discussion about how far we've come and how far we still have to go. Nellie inspires me to know that I have the knowledge and passion to go after what I really believe in and make a difference. She inspires me to speak my mind and speak it with the intention of making the world a better place for those less fortunate than myself. She was indicted into the National Women's Hall of Fame in 1998 and one of four journalists honored with a U.S. postage stamp in a Women in Journalism set in 2002. In 2019, Roosevelt Island Operating Commission put out an open call for artists to create a Nellie Bly Memorial Art Institution on Roosevelt Island, once Blackwell's Island. The winning proposal, The Girl Puzzle, by Amanda Matthews, was announced on October 16, 2019, and opened to the public in December of 2021. 
The piece looks like a broken bronze bust of Nellie's face with a plaque that reads, The Girl Puzzle, Nellie Bly. She was also the subject of the 1946 Broadway musical Nellie Bly by Johnny Burke and Jimmy Van Housen, which only ran for 16 performances. During the 90s, playwright Lynn Schritzty wrote a one-woman show about Nellie called Did You Lie, Nellie Bly? There are also movies titled The Adventures of Nellie Bly from 1981, 10 Days in a Madhouse from 2015, and Escaping the Madhouse, The Nellie Bly Story in 2019. There is also a character named Nellie Bree who appears in the 1994 installation of An American Tale entitled The Mystery of the Night Monster, which was inspired by Nellie Bly. The character of Lana Winters in American Horror Story Asylum was also inspired by Bly's experience in the asylum. She's also been the subject of an episode of The West Wing and, of course, Drunk History. On May 5th, 2015, the Google search engine produced an interactive Google Doodle for Bly, for which Karen O. wrote, composed, and recorded an original song about Nellie, and Katie Wu created an animation to go with it. Nellie is the protagonist in the novels by David Blix, who I mentioned earlier had discovered her old novels, as well as many other authors. There is also a Nellie Bly amusement park in Brooklyn, taking the theme of Around the World in 80 Days, but it has since been renamed Adventures Amusement Park in 2007. I had a lot of really wonderful sources today, but I was really glad to be able to find a copy of Nellie Bly's book, 10 Days in a Madhouse, online, and I was able to read it in its entirety to be able to give you all of the quotes directly from Nellie and how she experienced everything. I hope that you learned a lot. I hope that you were as excited to learn about this person as I was when I first heard about her. And if there's any other topics that you want me to cover this year in 2023, please reach out to me by email at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com or DM me on Instagram at angryneighborhoodfeminist. If you enjoy the show and think others would too, go over to your Apple Podcasts app and review the show with five stars and a quick sentence about why you enjoy it, or go over to Spotify and rate it there. I can't begin to tell you all how unbelievably thankful I've been for the past year in particular. Even though this was my fourth year with the show, this was the biggest year of change And it was really scary. It was very, very tough. And it had taken me a little bit of time to be able to grow the confidence in myself to be able to carry this show practically alone. And I really want to appreciate everybody who has stood by me and who has been so positive, people who have been very uh, specific about enjoying where I've taken the show has really, really given me the confidence to be able to take this further and further than I ever thought that I would be able to do for all of you. So surely none of this would be possible. And I would not put all of the time and energy into this if it wasn't for every single one of you listening. So thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the show for another year. And I hope you're looking forward to everything I have coming your way. All right, that's all I have for you today. With all of that being said, I encourage you to rage on. Bye. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. 
Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.